Hey there. Thanks for listening to the Greg Laurie Podcast, a ministry supported by Harvest Partners. I'm Greg Laurie, encouraging you. If you want to find out more about Harvest Ministries and learn more about how to become a Harvest Partner, just go to harvest.org. Randy Alcorn is a prolific author. He's written over 30 books, uh, a number of fiction titles. He's a great fiction writer, titles like Deadline, Dominion, Deception, as well as other books like The Grace and Truth Paradox, The Law of Rewards, The Purity Principle, The Treasure Principle. He's probably best known for this book here called Heaven, which I think is the finest book I've ever read on the subject. And I've read a lot of books about heaven, uh, especially since uh, my son went to be with the Lord. I've always taught on this topic and obviously believed in it, but I've really studied it and this is just an outstanding book. And then also his latest book is called If God is Good and it's on the topic of suffering. And so it answers a lot of those hard questions. So we're really glad that Randy could be with us. He, he used to be a pastor, but now he uses most of his time to write these outstanding books that bless people all around the world. And uh, he doesn't travel that much these days, but he made time in his calendar to be with us. And I'm really glad, and I know you're going to be blessed by what he has to say. So let's give a warm harvest welcome to Randy Alcorn as he comes. There we go. Well, Randy, welcome. Thanks. Uh, Stella is hard to follow. Yeah, yes, she is. Okay, well, uh, in our last interview, we used the time up so quickly, so I'm just going to dive right in, Randy. Uh, there's so much to talk about. But in your book, If God is Good, you make this statement, and I'll, I'll quote, most of us don't give um, enough thought to evil and suffering until we experience them. them. This forces us to force... Uh, formulate perspective on the fly at a time when our thinking is muddled and we're exhausted and consumed by pressing issues. People who have been there will attest that it's far better to think through suffering in advance. We're, we're all going to suffer. And it's the big question that people will ask is why is there suffering in the world today? So maybe you could just give us a quick response to just the big issue. Why is there suffering in the world today? The Bible tells us that we're under a curse because of sin. You see it in early in Genesis. God makes his perfect world. Uh, he gives the gift of choice. Wrong choice is made. Adam and Eve sin. We're told in Romans 5, we all sinned in Adam. The curse that came upon them also came upon the earth. It came upon their children. We experience it today. Romans 8 says the whole creation groans with a longing for the redemption that will come with the resurrection of God's children. So suffering happens in our world. It's part of the curse. We're living in a fallen world to be redeemed one day in the future. But uh, maybe the question becomes more personal when people ask, yeah, but why does God allow good people to suffer? And more to the point, godly people to suffer. Uh, you know, it's one thing when we just hear of tragedy in the world and it's so far away, but when it comes to our doorstep and, and a loved one close to us uh, gets cancer or we ourselves get bad news from a doctor or as in our case, you know, to one day wake up and our son of 33 years is suddenly no longer with us on this earth. And we wonder, why did God let that happen? You know, why did God allow a Christian, why does God allow a Christian to suffer? The Bible actually gives uh, a number of different reasons uh, for suffering. Uh, certainly, there is character building. There's character and perseverance and patience that Romans talks about that comes out of suffering. The fruit of the Spirit that's born in our lives as we're more dependent upon Him, 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul's got the thorn in the flesh, this affliction, and God says, uh, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Uh, you know, Christ said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And often when things are going well for us, we just sort of do it on our own. And nothing Sometimes comes from that. we forget about God a little bit, don't exactly. we? Exactly. And it's when we know that we lack the power. It's when we're reminded, as we are in life's hardest circumstances, I'm not in control. Any illusion of control is gone. Now I turn to the one, hopefully, who is in control God, 
and who has run the universe uh, without my help uh, in the past and will run the universe without my help in the future. And what I need to do is to say, I'm not in charge, but I know the one who is in charge. And that makes all the difference. We talk about the sovereignty of God. You talk about God being in control. Is he in control? Is he really aware of all the bad things that are happening? Are some things just happening randomly and God's preoccupied? How involved is the Lord in these things and how aware of them is he? There's an interesting passage in, in Chronicles where the evil king Ahab was going out into battle and he dressed up somebody else to look like him uh, so that that other person would be the target. And it talks about uh, some soldier, that, uh, an enemy, that fires the arrow and it uses the term randomly that this arrow randomly shot ends up falling up and hitting King Ahab and killing him in battle. So a randomly fired arrow reaches the exact target God intended, which was this evil king. So how does that work? How can there be randomness and yet how can God be sovereign? And how can Satan, who we know is very powerful, he's called the God of this world, the prince of power of the air, of darkness, all of that kind of stuff, how can he do these things and yet God still be in control? Well, you, you see Joseph who says to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, you intended it for evil. They did a thing that was inspired by Satan to betray your brother and throw him in that pit and sell him into slavery. That was horrifying what they did. And yet, he says, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to save many lives. Not just God will bring good out of it, and did bring good out of it, but God intended it. God had a plan from the beginning. And Ephesians 1 makes that clear. God, from eternity past, has this plan. And Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And he is working out that plan. Now, in all humility, we must say, we don't always understand that plan. And in the midst of evil and suffering, don't just snap your fingers and go, oh, well, obviously God's doing this, God's doing that. And don't worry about the tragic situation you've just endured because it's really all for the best. That is completely insensitive and inappropriate to say. What is appropriate to say is, I love you, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm there for you, I love you. Yeah, sometimes when people are trying to bring comfort to a Christian, they may even say things that are correct, but maybe they're said in the wrong way, uh, a little too cavalier about it, just kind of rattle off a bunch of passages, you know, since, uh, you know, we went through all the, that we've gone through and are going through, it doesn't end, you know, it just changes in what you're experiencing, the sense of loss, the sense of pain is still there. But uh, I, I think what I find myself doing more now, Randy, is listening more. I mean, I'm not so quick on the draw with the answer. I still will give biblical verses in the appropriate way. Uh, but at the same time, I'll listen to a person. And, and, you know, you talk about how we should weep with those that weep. You know, I interviewed Stephen Curtis Chapman a while back. And, you know, of course, his little daughter, Maria Sue, was killed in a tragic car accident. And... Uh, I said, so Stephen, what was said that really helped you? And he said, you know, the best thing that was said was there are no words. And there is a place for just being there. Remember the story of Job and his counselors. They actually had it together when they kept their mouths shut, didn't they? Exactly. And so when they started talking, trouble began. Yeah, they were there for Job for a whole week. Didn't say anything. They were there just to empathize with him. And their problems began when they started talking. Yes. Uh, and what we've got to do is, you know, there is, there's a time to be silent. Ecclesiastes tells us this, and there's a time to speak. Proverbs is full of verses that talk about an apt word spoken in the right time. Yes. And, a, and the wrong word spoken in the wrong time, or even the right word but in the wrong time. Yeah. Romans 8.28 is a classic example. I mean, yeah. Romans 8.28 is inspired by God. So you would think it would always be right to quote it, right? But somebody's daughter dies of leukemia. Do you look at them and you can say, well, God causes all things to work together for good. So, no, you know, don't feel bad because this, no, no, that's completely insensitive. The thing that scripture does is it gives us permission to ask questions of God, the inspired word of God. You, you have David asking, why are the heavens silent? 
Lord, why, why aren't you hearing me when I pray? Have, have you given up on me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. David said that in Psalm 22, and of course, Jesus said it on the cross. There are going to be times where there's darkness in our lives. Uh, some of us, including myself, have battled some with depression, and there, there are times of darkness that come. Sometimes they relate to certain circumstances, other times not that you can put your finger on. But in the midst of them, we need to look to the God who shed his blood for us on a cross. And one day we'll look at those hands and he, he may look at us and say, do these look like the hands of a God who does not care? All those times you wondered if I cared, do you have any doubts now? Romans 8, 28, let's come back to that. It is inspired by God. We don't get it in the moment. It's, it's in process. All things, better translation would be, are working together for good to those that love God. I mean, there are times in life where a bad thing will happen. You can see a good thing come out of it, and you can say, I get that. Then there are things in life where you're going through them, and you're saying, I'm not getting this at all. And then there are some things you say, this is a mystery to me. But what is God's end game? First of all, define what God means by good. And then what is his end game when we talk about things working together for good? Big picture. Let's step away now from earth and step away and look at it from a heavenly perspective perhaps. I think uh, one of the best uh, passages uh, in, in scripture related to that is in Ephesians 1 where it talks about God's plan. And it talks about his redemptive plan in Christ that he uh, has uh, predestined us to be adopted as children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And it goes on to talk about that grace and it goes on in Ephesians 2 to talk about how in the ages to come, God is going to be revealing to us the riches of his grace and his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, if we didn't live in a world of evil and suffering, we would not see this marvelous attribute of God, his grace, that has been manifested to us in Christ. So why does God allow what he allows for the greater good, for an eternal good that is so good? So good beyond measure that even the sufferings and difficulties of this life cannot be compared. Romans 8, 18 uh, tells us this. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. He doesn't say the sufferings aren't real. Oh, they're very real. And Paul knew all about him. And, and he documents all the sufferings in his own life in, in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 10, especially. He knew what he was talking about. We face these sufferings, but God has an ultimate plan, and the goodness of that will be measured in the revelation of his character qualities and his grace, which we will celebrate for all eternity. Yes. Let's transition now to the topic that's hard for a lot of people to consider, and that is death. Even sometimes Christians struggle with this. They're afraid to die. I have a question from a girl named Melanie from my Facebook page. She said, even though I'm a believer, I'm afraid to die. How, shall I, how should I view death as a Christian? I'm afraid of that moment when I pass from life to death. And then another person named Terry asks, could you please talk about the topic of soul sleep and uh, what happens when you die? Do you go immediately to the Lord? So let's just um, look at this for a moment, Randy. Okay, non-believer, they die. What happens to them? Okay, um, first with that one question, let me just say this. Then in, in Hebrews 2, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Christ too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Right. And that is a bondage, the fear of death. And Christ came to deliver us from the ultimate consequences of death, that is, uh, of sin, and, and the death it brings, of eternal separation from God, so that knowing now that we will spend eternity with Christ, we can say to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. It is better by far, Paul says in Philippians, uh, to depart uh, and be with Christ. So I, I think that, uh, that perspective on death is a huge one. What was the second question? Well, okay, that's a believer. A believer yeah, dies, they go into the right. presence of the Lord. 
What happens to the non-believer when they yeah, die? Yeah, the non-believer dies, and immediately, and we see this in Luke 16 with the story of the, the rich man and Lazarus, the unbeliever dies. That's a true story, a not true a story, True story, true story. This rich man dies, and he immediately is suffering the fires of hell. Yeah. Uh, and immediately Lazarus dies, and he is with the people of God that's in the bosom of Abraham. Uh, he is with Abraham at that point. And it appears that it's only after the resurrection of Christ that people who are in this paradise that is called Abraham's bosom uh, are then taken directly in the very presence of God because of the redemptive work of Christ. But when the believer dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When the unbeliever dies, it's to be in hell. So when a believer dies, they go straight to heaven, as you've said. Now, where is heaven? Okay, heaven is can be defined as the dwelling place of God. Now, God is everywhere present. He's omnipresent. But he is especially present in heaven, and he's especially present wherever his throne is said to be. His throne is said to be in heaven. So heaven is where God dwells especially, and that's where his throne is. That's where people enjoy his presence when they die and go to be with the Lord. And the Bible teaches us that that location that is called heaven will actually change. Because in Revelation 21, we are told that God is going to bring down the present uh, uh, heaven, his, his very presence to earth. And look in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 says, new heaven and new earth. Right. And then it says, in verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, now the dwelling of God is with men. This is the promise of God. He's going to come down and dwell with his people. The dwelling of God is with men. Where? On this new earth, in this new Jerusalem. Is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their gods. Three times we've got this expression of with them. So God will come down to dwell with his people on the new earth. So right now, when the believer dies, we leave this world, this earth, to and our spirits, our bodies stay here, they're corruptible. When we die, okay, then we, and our spirits, we go to be with the Lord. So we go up to heaven to live with God in his place. That's where heaven is now. But... We're told here that after the resurrection, which happens at the end of Revelation 20, that God is going to come down to this world where we with resurrected bodies and the resurrected Jesus will sit on the throne of the new Jerusalem and God will dwell down here with us. So that the ultimate promise of scripture is not simply that we go up to live with God in his place, but that God will come down to the new earth, a redeemed earth, to live with us in our place. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ will sit on that throne for all eternity. Right. So let's, let's get the big picture, kind of drawing from what you've said. Okay, believer dies, they go straight into the presence of God. But the Bible teaches there's a bodily resurrection. That is to come later. We have this resurrection. We're in this new body. Ultimately, heaven comes to earth. The Lord said in the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's really a fulfillment of that. And in the new Jerusalem, uh, in the latter part of the book of Revelation, that comes down, heaven and earth effectively become one place. So when we say, well, you know, I'm going to leave this old world and go to heaven. Well, that's true, technically, but you're also going to have a new world when heaven comes to earth. Exactly. And that's, uh, Romans 8 would be a great passage to turn to because Romans 8 is full of references to the present evil and suffering of this world. And then it moves from, you look for instance in, uh, in verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subject, subjected it, in hope that, verse 21 of Romans 8, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So then verse 22 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. But what happens 
in the pains of childbirth as opposed to the pains of death. The pains of childbirth result in life. So we can look at our present sufferings not as just death, the end of all things, but as what is leading to an eternity of life, the promise of eternal life with God. So the whole creation fell, uh, you know, in the wake of the choices made by Adam and Eve, but it will all rise uh, with us in the resurrection. So the whole creation will be redeemed. Jesus didn't just come in order to snatch our spirits from this world to another. He came to redeem this whole creation. Exactly. And it doesn't mean that everybody will be saved. That's, I'm not talking about universalism. Paul isn't talking about it. Yes, some people will go to hell. But in terms of his creation, God cares about animals. God cares about this world, which I think is there is a solid biblical basis for a Christian to be responsibly, uh, not excessively, but responsibly concerned with and caring for the world God has entrusted to our care because this world itself will be one day made right again. All the re-words in the Bible, redeem, reconcile, reconcile, renew, resurrect is resurrect, bring back into bodily form. All those re-words are to bring back what was lost in the fall and bring it back in a greater form for all eternity because of the redemptive work of Christ. You know, in Colossians 3, Paul says, set your affection, affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And really another way to translate that is constantly be thinking about or seeking heaven, or a simplified version might be think heaven. And as we try to wrap our minds around this future place God has for us in heaven where we go to meet the Lord, and then of course when we get our glorified body and heaven comes to earth, Still for many, it's really hard for them to grasp. It doesn't seem real to them. They don't, and they'll even say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't address these issues. A verse that's often quoted, 1 Corinthians 2, 9-10, I has not seen nor has ear heard nor has it entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Oh, you know, we don't know these things. You know, even Paul himself said he was caught up into the third heaven and what he heard was unspeakable, indescribable. So some will say, we can't know about heaven, but that's not really true, is it? It isn't, because that very passage that, that you quoted, many people have quoted uh, that passage to me, because it's, this is a great thing about uh, memory verses, but it's sort of a downside, is that memory verses are actually preceded by and followed by other verses <laughs> that we don't memorize. So you have in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That's used as a basis for it, so you can't know anything about heaven. Right. Except, it doesn't end there. Yeah. It's actually the same sentence, but it's in the next verse. Verse 10, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Revealed in the Word of God. So the things that we never could have imagined on our own, we never could have known what was coming. Yeah. But God has revealed them to us. So Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but it doesn't stop there. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. In other words, what God has told us, there's many things he hasn't told us about heaven. Okay, so we don't have to know those. But what he has told us is powerful. Let us study and contemplate and know and look forward to what he's told us about heaven. I was reading last night in 2 Peter 3 where three times in a sequence of three or four verses, it says we are looking forward to a new heavens and the new earth. And since we're looking forward to it, what kind of people ought we to be in terms of life and, and godliness? And we are looking forward to these things. And then I start thinking... There's just a lot of Christians who are not looking forward to heaven. Yeah. They're thinking of the loss. Oh, I just enjoy the beauty of this world, and we won't be able to experience that anymore. Oh, no, we'll, we'll experience a, a far better version of this. Right. It will be a redeemed world. Yeah. yeah, because earth is not a copy of heaven. 
Uh, excuse, uh, yeah, it is a copy of heaven. What I meant to say is heaven is not a copy of earth. Earth is effectively a copy of heaven. It, in Hebrews 8.5 it says that they serve in a place of worship that's only a copy or a shadow of the real one in heaven. We often reason about it the wrong way. We think, well, earth is great. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. But it's really the other way around, isn't it? It is. And think of how God has made us. Did Satan give us a sense of humor? Did Satan make uh, us to like food? Did Satan give us taste buds? Did Satan uh, make us to enjoy relationships no. with each other? That's all God. Yes. God says it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. God created human relationships, hum- human community, and God made us desire to do things with our bodies. How many of you watched some of the Olympics? It's kind of hard to miss, right? You know, I mean, it's just like you saw a lot of commercials, I know, but th- there were other things too. There were actually athletic events. And they were great. And you look at it and you go, why does that inspire us? Because Satan put that desire in us? No. Can sports be abused? Of course. Can you over... I don't know. Satan yes. may have invented that thing where they push those little things that float around in the ice. That's yes. Just, yes. What is curling? That's an Olympic event? Yes. Will we do curling in heaven? I don't think so. No. Um, but <laughs> other athletic events, yes. Or true athletic events, yes. Yeah. And, and, and this is what you think. And, you know, you look at this, and uh, sorry, I, no offense if, if you're like a Norwegian curler or something like that. <laughs> there's uh, three right back it's, there. There's three back there. I they're see the outfits. Yes. I see the outfits. Yeah. But uh, anyway, but the, but the point is, God made us to love these things. So like somebody will say, I had somebody say to me one time, there's no possible way that on the new earth, for instance, that we could uh, participate in sports. And I, I said, why? Why would you say that? I said, because competition uh, brings out sinfulness. And I said, well, look, I coach tennis. I know competition can bring out sinfulness. It also can bring out great character and can build character in the young men that I work with. Been able to lead, uh, you know, teenage boys to Christ and disciple them and mentor them. See, I've seen the best come out in them as well as the worst. Well, that's even in this fallen world. But what about the world to come that's unfallen? God made these bodies and he promises us resurrection bodies. And when he says we're going to have new bodies, that's not a non-body. When it says there's going to be a new earth, that's not a non-earth. Earth is the operative term. Body is the operative term. A real body. You know, if I said, uh, I'm going to give you a new car, uh, Greg, which I'm not going to do. But if I, I said that, I'd be lying. But let's suppose that you wouldn't say, oh, Rain's going to give me a new car. I'll bet it doesn't have a windshield, transmission, uh, wheels, uh, tires. It doesn't have this. It doesn't have that. Well, no, because if it didn't have those things, it wouldn't be a car. Right. When God promises a new body... It will be what a body is, except it'll be incorruptible, we're told. It won't be subject to disease, but we will eat and drink at feasts together with the Lord, and they'll come from the east and the west, eating and drinking, I can tell. Harvest people like eating and drinking. That's the only thing we've applauded to so far. I know. I think the the Swedes started it. It's true, but those are things we do, and the Bible does say that we'll have this feast and we'll be reunited with our loved ones. You know, sometimes we, you know, when, when you have someone that goes to be with the Lord, you long yes. to communicate with them. You miss them deeply. And sometimes you wonder, well, I want to go to heaven to see the loved one. Well, should I instead be longing to be with Jesus? Is this taking the place of Jesus? You know, address that. Is there a balance there? How should we look at that? Well, I think there is a balance. Um, but I've, I've seen some people go way overboard one direction or the other. Some people, it seems like all that they're talking about all the time is all the great things there will be about heaven. But they're not really talking about the Lord. There's actually a very popular book. How many of you have read the the Mitch Album book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. Have some of you read that? Well, you shouldn't have, any of you that raise your... No, I'm kidding. Um, but, but really, the, the strange thing about that book, I, I'm reading this book because it's at the top of the New York Times bestsellers list, and it was very popular when I was writing my book, Heaven. And I'm reading it, and I go, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and you know what's striking in that book? Not one of the people is God. Yeah. God isn't in that book. I mean, he's, he's virtually nowhere present. And so heaven, God is the source of all joy. He's the fountainhead of joy. So if you're not thinking about God when you're thinking about heaven, if you're just thinking about, oh, it'll be great to see somebody that I used to know or even a loved one, if that's all you're thinking, you're, you're, you're really missing 
the greatest thing that heaven has to offer, which is God. But then I've heard people take it the opposite extreme, which is just what you're saying there with the question, Greg, and that is saying, oh, you shouldn't think about being reunited with a loved one because, after all, all you should care about is being with God. Well, that actually contradicts Scripture because 1 Thessalonians uh, 4 says specifically, verse 13, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, and that is not soul sleep, that's a euphemism for death, because on the outside it appears that the person who dies, it's as if they've fallen asleep, but their spirit goes to be immediately with the Lord, uh, and, and will be until the resurrection, about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now notice, it does not say Christians do not grieve. Yeah. It says we don't grieve as the same, in the same way that the rest of men who have no hope. We grieve with a hope and anticipation of reunion with a loved one who knows Jesus. So now he goes on to explain why we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope, because we're not being permanently separated from those we love. It's an interruption of relationship. It's not a termination of relationship. So he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Then it goes on to say that those are still alive, that we won't that we won't precede those who have fallen asleep in the resurrection. In other words, he's promising we'll be reunited. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, that is those we've been temporarily separated from. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In other words, you'll be together with the loved one you've lost, and that's why you don't grieve as those who have no hope of reunion. You'll be with them. And then, so we will be with the Lord forever. Perfect balance. We look forward to being with the Lord, and we look forward to being with the loved ones. And remember, our loved ones are a gift from God to love Your loved one is to do what God made you to do, and they are his gift to you. So I would know, God no more resents our wanting to be with the loved ones who's gone on before us as you would uh, resent your grandchild or your child enjoying a Christmas gift you give them. You want them to enjoy the gift. You don't say, you shouldn't enjoy that gift, you should only enjoy me. No. You're enjoying me by enjoying the gift that I gave you. Well, well put. That's great. All right, let's talk about these new bodies now that God has for us. You're talking about the creation groaning. Every time I drop something on the ground and have to pick it up, I understand that I, I groan. And when I'm down there picking it up, I think to myself, what else can I do while I'm already down here? <laughs> Be a steward of your time. <laughs> Be a good steward of your time. Now, these new bodies that, that we're going to receive from the Lord they're still us, we're still us, but we're in a glorified state. Uh, Heaven is the earthly life of the believer, glorified and perfected. Uh, We don't lose memory of what happened here. Uh, We know more, but, so let's talk a little bit about those new bodies. Okay, and I know that you've used, uh, well not you've used, the scripture cites Christ himself as the prototype, if you will, that we look at his resurrected body. When Christ who is our life shall appear, we shall appear with him in glory. We shall be like him. So let's talk about this new body. How is it different from us, the body on earth? How is it the same? Great question. Uh, the, the Bible says that Jesus is the first fruits yes. from the grave. And, and as, as you quoted, Greg, we will be like him for we'll see him as he is. So what was his resurrection body like? We want to know what our resurrection bodies will be like? We're told we'll be like him, and he's the first fruits from the grave, and the first fruits represent right. what's to, to come in the case of the other fruit, and that is us. We are going to have bodies like Christ. So here it is in Luke uh, 24, verse 37. They were startled, and they were frightened when they saw Jesus at first because they're thinking they saw a ghost. They're going, this man died, and, and, and says, this is a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do do doubts arise in your minds? Verse 39 of Luke 24, look at my hands and my feet, Jesus says. It is I myself. 
Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And he says, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. He went to great lengths to demonstrate to us that the resurrection body is a real, actual, physical body and so that we don't take figurative those passages, or shouldn't rather, when it talks about eating and drinking at tables. And I've had people, I, I had a, a man in my church when I preached a message on this years ago uh, and talked about the feast and coming from the east and west. He came up to me, old saint of God, loved good doctrine, and he said, you are not actually saying that we'll have real bodies and that we'll eat and drink. And I said, that's what the Bible says. And he says, it just sounds so unspiritual. So, well, why does it sound unspiritual? God is the one, you know, who made the body. And I thought, here is a great saint of God who would die before he would deny the do- doctrine of the resurrection, but he doesn't actually believe it. Yeah. But I mean, the, the resurrection, look at in Job 19. Job says, I mean, here's the oldest book in the Bible. Job 19, verse 25 Job, in the midst of his suffering that he's undergoing, he cries out. He says, oh, that my words were recorded, that they're written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. The person going through suffering feels like, oh, I I wish my words would last. Well, Job, we're reading your words, and they've lasted. I know, verse 25, Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, He will stand upon the earth. Not just that he'll be out in heaven somewhere. He'll stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Some people say, say, well, you can't find the resurrection in the Old Testament. I go, ah, well, that's what it is. Yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. It will really be me. It'll really be us. We'll have memory. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're told we're going to give an account for everything we've done in the body. So when people talk about, oh, we won't remember anything in heaven, uh, on the contrary, we'll remember more. Because yeah. I can't remember everything now, but what, if I'm going to give an account for my life, I have to remember it. Yes. So heaven and earth, right now we coexist at the same time. There's a physical realm, there's a spiritual realm. Right now in heaven, here's a person, they, they write, uh, her name is Becky. My husband passed away a few years ago and sometimes people will tell my children or me he's looking down on us from heaven. While it's encouraging to think he seems us, this seems contradictory to scripture. Could you shed light on this? Are people who have gone on before us, believers in the Lord, looking down on us right now or looking down at us at any time? What do people in heaven know about what is happening here on earth? I think a good passage to turn to for that is Revelation chapter 6, where you have the martyrs in heaven. They've died. They've gone home to be with the Lord. They're with Jesus in the present heaven. You look in uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Now, here's what they do. This is what life is like for them in the present heaven. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Well, first of all, clearly they remember their life on earth. And some people say, well, if we could remember anything of our life on earth and heaven, surely we couldn't remember the bad things. How much worse does it get than having been murdered? And they remember that they were murdered. But see, the key to heaven is not ignorance. It's perspective on their lives. So they remember that they, their, their lives on earth, they remember the bad things actually that even happened to them, but now they see them through redemptive eyes, and they're also aware that God has not yet brought judgment upon their persecutors. They're not asking, Lord, have you brought judgment? They're saying, when will you bring judgment? So they know that he hasn't yet. How do they know that? Because they're seeing at least to a degree, at least, they're aware of what's going on down on earth. And then they're told that they had to wait a little longer. Remember, they're saying, how long, O Lord? Wait a little longer. People say, well, is there time in heaven? Very clearly, there is here. And then 
he says when the last martyr dies, that's basically when he's going to return. But you look at Luke chapter 15, where Jesus says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels when a sinner repents. It doesn't say the angels rejoice. It could easily say the angels rejoice. It doesn't say that. I'm sure they do rejoice, but it's saying there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels when a sinner on earth rejoices. I mean, I mean repents. Yeah. So how do they know that the sinner on earth has repented. They, they have to know about it in order to rejoice. Who are those people in the presence of the angels? I think it's the people of God. It's the, it's the part of the body of Christ that's already gone home. They may be prayed for years for that person. They see that that person repented. There's rejoicing in the very presence of the angels where the people of God are when someone down on earth repents. So people in heaven are aware of what is happening on earth, as you've pointed out. Uh, one verse that's often quoted is, you know, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let's run the race with endurance that's up before us. And some would interpret that as saying, well, these are the people that have just gone before us and have sort of set the example, which is true, of course. Right. Hebrews 11 precedes yep. Hebrews 12, and that's the hall of faith of all the great heroes of the Bible. But then again, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, some wonder is that, you know, I don't know if it's heavenly grandstands, but certainly some form of... Um, viewing or watching from a heavenly perspective, you know, seeing it from that view. I think so. I, I think you could compare, and I do this in the Heaven book, it's like uh, center court at Wimbledon. So you've got, uh, you've got this great tennis match that's going on, and then there are people in the grandstands are watching it. Well, some of the people in the grandstands are people, they always kind of focus in on former champions and all of that. It's like people who have gone before who are now watching those who are participating. And I agree that in Hebrews 11, now you can't really prove the cloud of witnesses is, is, is exactly that they're all watching. But when you put it together with these other passages, it makes perfect sense. The focus of heaven is on the unfolding drama of redemption that is happening on planet Earth. Mm. And so Christ is uh, going to return and does it make sense to think that the people up in heaven are kind of like, oh, they're just oblivious to what's going on down on earth to which they're going to return with Christ, like it says in, in Thessalonians and other passages, and they're going to return with him and his plan for the redemption of planet earth will be culminated. Do they care? Are they interested in what's going on down in heaven? Uh, down on earth, from the perspective of heaven, I think the answer is yes. I think they're cheering us on. And I don't think, by the way, that we, we should ever, there's no biblical basis, in fact, it's contradicted scripturally, that we should ever pray to the saints. We do not pray to the saints. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. First yeah. Timothy tells us, but it's maybe a different question of whether the saints are praying for us. Yeah. I mean, they're there they're, because even in, in this passage in Revelation 6, they're saying, how long before you bring judgment? Well, they're, they're almost praying for judgment yeah. to come down on these sinners. But meanwhile, if they're seeing the righteous people of God, are they upholding them in prayer? Well, prayer's talking to God. Will we talk to God less once we go to heaven than we do when we're here? I think we'll talk to him more. So when we're in heaven, what is, how are we related one to another? Right now you're a father, you're a husband, you're a son, you're a grandfather. Uh, will we be married still in heaven? Because the verse that's often cited, Matthew 22, Jesus said the resurrection will neither marry nor are given in marriage. They're like the angels of God in heaven. So are we married in heaven? Are we still husbands? Uh, sons, what daughters, mothers, etc. How does that all work? This one passage, Jesus defined this related to marriage. There will be no more human marriage exactly as we know it. And in that one specific respect, we'll be like the angels who aren't right. given marriage. But it's not an overall thing like we'll be like the angels in other respects or most respects. But what I think is so significant about this is uh, my wife Nancy is my best friend. She is here today, but she likes to be in the back and not be publicly acknowledged, so I will not point out where she is, but she's in here somewhere. And if you find her, she's adorable. Anyway, uh, so I love Nancy, but what, I, what I've had people say to me, oh, well, you know, I got a great marriage here on earth, and, and I, I, it really bothers me that we won't be married in heaven. Well, here's the way I look at it. 
Nancy and I will be part of the same marriage in heaven because the Bible doesn't say there will be no marriage in heaven. It says there'll be one marriage of heaven, yes. Christ to his bride, the church. Yeah. We are part of the church, so we together will be part of the bride of Christ. So I will be part of a marriage with Nancy to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's the most important person in both of our lives, and we're second in both of our lives. And what a great thing that will be to be together in marriage to him. And let's be honest, there are other people who unfortunately have gone through very difficult marriage experiences on earth or have not been married on earth at all. And they have something to look forward to, which is a perfect marriage relationship with a bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who will never let us down. That's right. I have a good quote here. That's, amen. Here's a good quote, Randy. Earthly marriage is a shadow, an echo of the true and ultimate marriage. The purpose of marriage is not to replace heaven, but to prepare us for it. You agree with that? I do. Absolutely. You wrote it. Well, <laughs> it's from your book. I thought it sounded familiar, <laughs> but I. <laughs> That'd have been great if you said, that's wrong. That is stupid. Who's the idiot who wrote that? <laughs> and uh, another quote. Uh, from your book, God's plan doesn't stop in heaven and the new earth, it continues. God doesn't abandon his purposes, he fulfills them. Friendships and relationships begun on earth will continue in heaven richer than ever. Okay, just some, now maybe because we're running out of time, some quick answers, because we do hear this. Will our pets be in heaven? Now let's just establish one thing. No cats in heaven, in my opinion. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But, um, but no, really though, you know, we might, some might laugh that of all pets in heaven, people get very attached to their pets. And what, is there a possibility your pet could be in heaven? Well, you know, I've got two chapters uh, in the, the Big Heaven book, uh, one on uh, animals, and it relates to Romans 8, Isaiah 60, a passage that refers to a number of animals uh, and definitely refers to the new earth because it's cited twice, Isaiah 60 in Revelation 21 and 22, an application of the new earth, that it's part of God's whole creation. So because the whole creation groans with a longing for deliverance, and it's not just human beings, it emphasizes the whole creation right. is currently suffering. Well, who else besides human beings suffers? Animals. And they're and the whole creation's looking forward to a deliverance. It sounds like some beings be, besides humans who are now suffering will experience the relief of that suffering and will be part of life on a new earth. And again, that conforms to uh, Isaiah 60 uh, and Ezekiel 47 and a few other Old Testament passages as well. Then the question becomes, would, could some of those animals... Uh, that God restores as part of a new creation, could they be uh, pets? Well, my question would be, why not? If there's yeah. going to be some animals, why not animals that God entrusted to the stewardship and care of his people? And by the way, if you want to read a fascinating passage on this sometime, I reread it the other day. Genesis chapter 9, where God makes his covenant with Noah, he repeatedly, I believe it's six or seven times, says, I make this covenant with you and with all the living creatures that walk the ground and swim in the seas. You go, why does he repeatedly keep saying that he's making a covenant with animals? Well, because he views animals as the second most important entities on this planet. Human beings are first, animals are second. And for whatever reason, he actually has a plan for them. And I think that's another passage that would indicate God has a future purpose for animals. Yeah. You know, the Bible says that we'll rule over certain things in the new earth. And probably because I've mocked cats so many times, I'll rule over a lot of cats or yeah, something. If, if, if there were a purgatory, it might be you with the cats. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure, but no. Someone listening to this right now is hurting. The, yeah. they, they're, they're living with a disability. Uh, someone close to them died recently. They found out they're terminally ill. It seems like the walls are closing in, the, in on them. And they believe in the Bible. They believe in Jesus Christ. But right now, they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. They, they see in, an insurmountable obstacle. They see something that they don't think they can survive. What would you say to that person right now? 
I would really say, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of God. And that, in Hebrews 12 that I was just quoting from, is preceded by the stories of great saints of God in Hebrews 11, but something they all had in common was how much they suffered. And there is a lot of suffering going on in this world, and we have a God who cares. It's not the God of what's called deism, who was the watchmaker who started it all and then departed and doesn't really care what's going on. It's a God who looked down, he cries, he weeps for his people. We're told that in Exodus, how he wept for his people. Jesus weeping over the people of Jerusalem. And it's a God who came down to become one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that he extended out his arms, his hands bear the mark of the greatest evil and suffering that has ever happened in human history. We call that day Good Friday. Why do we call it Good Friday? Why don't we call it Bad Friday, Horrible Friday? Because... God brought great good out of the worst thing that ever happened, and he can do that for you too. And one day, you'll be embraced by the Lord. You'll hear him say, if, if you've been faithful to follow him and by his grace at work in your life, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. And when that day comes, we all will know it was worth it. God, you accomplished things that I didn't even know about, and I look forward now to finding out, now that I'm with you, and I'm sure that God's going to explain a lot of things to us that we don't understand now. But God, thank you that you were faithful to me, even in the dark times, and the joy I will experience of your unfolding riches of grace for all eternity, I know it will prove worth it. Think those thoughts. There was a beginning that was perfect. There is an end without end that will go on forever that will be perfect. We live in the difficult middle. Put it in perspective by the past and the future that is built on the finished work of Christ. What if somebody is uh, here, and most people are, um, <laughs> at least bodily, um, but they, they don't know if they're going to go to heaven. They think, well, I, I've lived a good life, and I, I've tried to, you know, do good things for other people and I think you know the good Lord on that day when that day comes will let me into heaven but we can know we're going to heaven so how can you know how do I know I'm going to heaven what do I need to do yeah. well scripture is very emphatic on this and uh, of course a lot of you know this and uh, Greg I think even you know this uh, but <laughs> Greg clearly knows this but uh, it's his life message but uh, yeah but, you know, in 1 John, in 1 John 5, you know, there, there is not a sense of uncertainty. He, he says this in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ. No work, not by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works lest any man should boast. There's only one way we can get into heaven, that's by the finished work of Christ. If we trust in our own work, works there as filthy rags, they will do nothing, uh, our destiny is hell if that's what we're trusting in. But God sent his son so that we could place our faith and trust in him. He guarantees through his finished work on our behalf eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life by trusting not in what we have done. That's nothing to trust in. But in what he has done for us by his grace and to his eternal glory. Let's thank Randy for coming today and sharing those thoughts. With. Thank you, Randy. God bless you. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this podcast. To learn more about Harvest Ministries, follow this show and consider supporting it. Just go to harvest.org. And to find out how to know God personally, go to harvest.org and click on Know God.